Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 76 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to examining the works of writer, director, producer J.J. Abrams and his extended Bad Robot universe. I'm your co-host, Matt Crandall, here as always with Marcelo Inestroza. And today we are taking a look at 1992's Mel Gibson drama Forever Young, which is the third credited screenplay by one Jeffrey Abrams, who also gets an EP credit on this. Digging into the research, it seems like this was a hot script at the time. It sold for $2 million when it was originally titled The Rest of Daniel. Warner Brothers picked it up, got Steve Miner of horror movie fame to step in and direct this movie brings us a very young Elijah Wood in a star-making performance, a 90s typical Jamie Lee Curtis, and Mel Gibson as Mel Gibson plays a man who accidentally gets frozen for 50 years and wakes up. But this ain't no Austin Powers joint. This is a serious Daniel has to struggle with modern life. Marcelo, how did you feel about Jeffrey Abrams' script for Forever Young? Uh, first, I can't believe that this film caused a bidding war. It is sort of unfathomable to me that this script could cause a bidding war. Uh, but secondly, I mentioned last week that regarding Henry started to get into the J.J. realm of what he likes to do. But I take that back. This movie, Forever Young, is J.J. all over the place. Because if you think about it, it's got romantic undertones up the yin-yang. It's got a sci-fi sort of thing with the freezing technology, what happens to Daniel. And it just has emotion after emotion after emotion after emotion. And the thing that I particularly liked about this film from the start is when you first meet Mel Gibson, you understand from the get-go that he is a daredevil. And he doesn't really give a shit about anything but testing planes and his girlfriend. But the way that Mel Gibson introduces his character... I mean, he's a test pilot, so he's in a plane in the middle of the sky, falling out of the sky with reckless abandon. And I love the way that he sort of talks to his plane. He sort of coaxes it down to the ground. Also, I loved the chemistry between Mel Gibson and the woman who plays his girlfriend in this movie, especially early on before Mel Gibson goes into the freezing tank. Their short interactions at the beginning of the film really set a good precedent as to why Mel Gibson still loves this individual after he gets, you know, unfrozen unceremoniously by the kids. So I think that uh, JJ and the director of the film did a great job of making us care uh, so much about the relationship between Mel Gibson and his girlfriend in very, very little scenes because, because we get a really snippet of Daniel's life right before it goes to shit. So I really did enjoy that. What did you think about that? Yeah, I think you're right that this definitely has all of the hallmarks of J.J. Abrams, where it is a high concept. Man in 1939 gets frozen, wakes up in 1992, has to deal with modern life, and he missed so much and how that plays out. Man has overwhelming desire to meet up with his true love, who circumstances have kept them apart. So it's got this sentimental undercurrent 
of romanticizing the past and this emotional love story, but also being this weird sci-fi concept. And you're right that early on, Daniel and the woman that he loves only have a couple of minutes of screen time to get us invested in their relationship to carry us through the next hour and 20 of the movie. They do so in a way that we see them bantering and she kind of doesn't take his shit. Him and her have this, you know, fireside chat. And then we see that he's going to propose, but can't work up the balls to do it. And him getting nervous and eating the pie really quickly right before she has a tragic accident is the like distilling the the points, the bullet points of the relationship to make us invested as quickly as possible. So it works really well because it's the bare minimum, but just enough to get us in on the ground floor and thinking like these two would would be happy together if they were able to get their life. But she then gets in an accident and it seems like all hope is lost. So Daniel volunteers for this crazy science experiment. If you are volunteering for a crazy science experiment, you're better off being with like Team Captain America rather than Team Norm from Cheers. <laughs> So if the head guy is Norm from Cheers, who's going to be in charge of making sure that everything goes right, I'm saying, hold on, uh, maybe not. This guy seems like a drunk. I found it funny that, like, I like George Went, but it was just like, this is the guy that you got to be the scientist? The guy who's most well-known for sitting on a bar stool and drinking beers is going to play the guy that all of this is in his hands? So of course it goes horribly wrong. I liked and was frustrated by the fact that Mel Gibson gets frozen. And then we just literally in that moment, we see the freezing process happen. We see a plane fly by. And then we are in 1992 with no explanation, not even telling us at first that it's 1992, no follow up. So we don't see how he got abandoned, why he was forgotten and so later we have to find that out as Mel Gibson does a little bit of detective work, which adds the intrigue, but then it's a lot of just telling rather than showing what happened. So I feel like it would have been a little bit more powerful if we had somehow seen how some sort of horrible accident befell the science team, even in the moment, to then realize the horror of, oh my God, he's been asleep for 50 years. But it was interesting that this does play in the other thing that JJ is really good at, which he showed in Super 8, is having these young kids with this mysterious sense looking around because the way that we discover Mel Gibson is Elijah Wood and his buddy are messing around where they shouldn't and they're just being kids and they accidentally unfreeze Daniel. So I was getting some real Amblin vibes off of that and you could see that early on in the in the movie. I found it really interesting that in the first scene of the movie when Daniel lands, Norm shows up to say, hey Daniel, I froze a chicken. But there isn't much buildup as to, he just says, I froze a chicken. And... That's all he says. And then after after Daniel's girlfriend has the accident, Daniel goes to Norm, we'll call him Norm for the sake of this podcast, and says, I want you to freeze me. And I'm like, I needed I needed a little bit more from from Norm's character to really understand what he wanted to get out of the freezing machine and what was the application for it. Because the only thing he said was, I froze the chicken. And so we go from I froze the chicken to my girlfriend's not going to wake up and I want you to freeze me. What are his qualifications? What? Is, why is he making this machine? What does he hope to get out of this machine? And how long was that chicken frozen? Because it was like, 
Mel Gibson was like, yeah, he froze it. Then it was back to life. Well, did he freeze it for like a day, an hour? Was it months? And then later we find out in the notebook when he reads that note about the chicken aging irreversible. Nobody thought to tell him that that chicken fucking lifespan went from whatever to whatever before he jumped in that machine. I Freezing that chicken was a great way to explain the concept, but they didn't tell us why or for how long. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other thing that really pissed me off, I really got... Like you mentioned, I got emblem vibes. I got super a vibes with uh, the kids running through the warehouse. But first of all, this guy had a freezing machine. He told Daniel not to tell anyone. He did this. He did that. But why would the government put a giant freezing machine in a fucking warehouse with spare parts? <laughs> like, would like like excuse me? Wouldn't the government know what's in there? Wouldn't the government have to answer to, you know, a humanity organization? I mean, the government just can't take a living, breathing person and put them in a fucking warehouse for 50 years. I like how they say, oh, we just thought it was some sort of other kind of machine. So we just put it in the junk pile. We weren't paying attention. Nobody did a proper inventory. It's a living, breathing man. So you're telling me that nobody, you know, in 1930, when the project got the punk, nobody said, oh, we should write down what this fucking project was about. Who cares if it was classified? Because if, if this thing ever comes out, if this guy ever wakes up, whoever's still alive is not going to know who, what the fuck we did. I absolutely agree with you. I think the thing that JJ put in there to try and like gloss over it is that because he was frozen in 1939 and World War II happens right after. It's like the chaos of World War II, everybody forgot. And it was supposed to be that that event is so huge that that's how he gets lost. Right, right. It's a plot hole for sure. It's, you really gotta, you really gotta jump across a cavern to make that somehow work logically. That all those years people saw a metal coffin and never thought fucks in there. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, okay. So that is a plausible explanation, but still, that's a plausible explanation with holes in it. Oh yeah. And the other thing, yeah, the other thing that I was wondering was, okay, if you debunk the program, why not put that thing? Why not put that thing in like an Ark of the Covenant situation? Why? I mean, I understand the World War II thing. The country was upside down. Everything was chaos and records got lost. People got lost. I understand chaos. I couldn't get past how the, the fucking government could put something that sensitive in a goddamn warehouse. I couldn't, I couldn't get over it. I, I just couldn't get over it. Right. Especially to your point, it is a small warehouse. It's not like the Ark of the Covenant. And part of that is probably budgetary that they couldn't actually film some vast expanse. So it does just look like they lost him in a moderately sized military warehouse that anybody should have been able to like inventory in a day. Which definitely makes it a little bit harder to swallow. I do think that, you know, once we get past that, and that that was part of the story that I'm like, okay, I'm willing to forgive that. There are other plot things later that I don't love. When Gibson unfreezes and scares the shit out of the kids, I love that moment. And like I said, this movie was directed by Steve Miner, who is known mostly for horror. He did... Friday the 13th, 2 and 3. He ended up doing Halloween H2O with Jamie Lee Curtis. He directed a great horror comedy called House. So there are moments like when Mel is unfreezing that feel like a horror movie because these kids don't know what's going on. But then also 
Steve Miner was known for doing episodes of The Wonder Years and did a lot of teen TV since. And this has a lot of those vibes in the at-home family stuff. And that is where the movie really shines when Mel unfreezes and his relationship with Nat, played by 10-year-old Elijah Wood, is really charming and fun. And they have great banter. And seeing Daniel try and reintegrate as he's trying to figure out what happened to him and how this happened is the more interesting part of the movie. And the heart being that relationship between him and the kid and him stepping in to save Jamie Lee from a really disturbing scene where she's going to get a beat down and sexually assaulted and Mel steps in and you're like, thank God he was there, but how dark is this movie about to turn? Um, so I appreciated that. And Jamie Lee is, is doing a great job to make that character endearing. And even her goofball boyfriend from the hospital, he could have been like a jealous jerk when he sees handsome Mel Gibson hanging out with his family, but they don't play it that way. And I really appreciated that they didn't try and go down like a super romantic route with those two. They do have a few moments, but it's more like human moments and dealing with this loss and, and this out of time aspect rather than like they were going to have a hot and heavy sex scene or something. So I thought that was really interesting that the family dynamic and the way it worked in was good. There's a lot of plot holes where we can start wondering, Daniel is not as freaked out as he should be considering what happened and considering the technology that he's now faced with. He's not that phased. And I'm like, okay, I I understand that we don't want to see him like freaking out. Even when he's reading about like Hiroshima and stuff, he's kind of just taking it all in. But I'm like, a lot of this stuff that would have happened over 50 years would probably rattle the shit out of you. How do you think you would deal in that situation waking up? Even seeing the the difference in cars, telephones, and, you know, TV. He's like, oh, I've seen TV before. But like this in color? What are we... How are you not losing it? <laughs> yeah, I... Look, look, if somebody, if somebody put me in a cryogenically free a chamber and froze me for 50 years and I woke up, the first thing I would go and ask when I woke up is, what are your medical advancements? You know, just because of who I am. But with that aside, I would freak the fuck out because I can't imagine what the world is going to look like 50 years from now. Um, granted, we might not have flying cars, but the world that you and I know today will be vastly different 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. And I do think that Mel, specifically when he was reading the history book, that I think it was Elijah Wood that gave him the history book, and was he was reading the history book in the in the little treehouse that they had. By the way, I want to speak about that treehouse for a minute. Him reading about all the history that he's missed in the past 50 years, I kind of liked the way that he sat there and he just sort of took it in. Now, granted, he could have freaked out just a little bit, but I but I got I got a sense that. Daniel, for the most part, is a really level-headed guy. We do have the early scene when he um when he worms his way onto the base for the first time and he tries to speak to someone who is in charge and someone who has a position of power. And he's dealing with that fucking soldier who won't give him the time of day, who won't even let him in. And when he does speak with that higher-up person, the higher-up person basically thinks he's a fucking loon. Mm-hmm. And doesn't take anything he says seriously until later on when that person gets a call from it, one of his uh, superiors and says, no, this guy is important. You need to find this guy again. So I do think that Daniel, for the most part, is a very level-headed guy and he doesn't freak out easily. But the other thing that I did like 
the the other positive little touch that I did like is when Daniel first gets out of the warehouse and he steals a bunch of shorts and he steals he steals like this awful awful Hawaiian T-shirt and he goes up to a payphone. Uh, you know, big props for uh for seeing a payphone again. I'm a child in the '90s, so that shit made me happy as hell. Uh, but when he goes up to the payphone and he dials the operator, and the way that Mel Gibson speaks to the operator, he speaks with pain in his voice. His voice sounds like it's been under for 50 years. And when he gives the phone number to the operator, the operator first does two things. The operator says, you didn't give me enough numbers. And then out of the blue, the operator does the most rude thing ever. She hangs up on him. So I'm like, excuse me, madam. Like if, excuse me, if I call the operator and I'm trying to do something and the operator sees that I'm struggling, why the hell would the operator hang up on me like that? Right. I found it to be really, really weird. And then a couple of seconds after that, Daniel sees this banner for, I believe it's the air show. Yeah. And he just sees it. He just sees 1992 and he goes, oh, brother. And I'm like, okay, I love that scene. I, I, I love that. But you're right. There are moments in this movie where I go, eh, you guys could have done that better. That really didn't need to be there. I'm not really interested in this. The ending of the film was kind of dumb. Well, it wasn't dumb. That's the wrong word. It wasn't dumb, but it was just a little bit un- underwhelming. <laughs> Definitely was underwhelmed by the ending. But I just want to say first that, yes, Mel Gibson is really good in this movie. Like, he does sell it. His acting is incredible in many of those scenes, like when he makes that phone call. And I did like seeing, you mentioned when he goes to the military base and he can't get in. And the soldier who won't let him in is Walton Goggins. In his very first movie ever, seeing friggin' Shane from The Shield, friggin' Boyd Crowder be the guy berating Mel Gibson in a Hawaiian shirt, saying, I will not let you in. Baby Billy from The Righteous Gemstones. I'm like, Walton Goggins, yes, I love this. Even though he's only on the, in the movie for about a minute and a half, I was like, they knew that he had something special with those chompers, and there he is. And... Then Mel gets in and has his meeting with the guy who thinks he's Looney Tunes. And the guy even writes down nuts in big letter on the notepad. And I thought that is trying to also show us that these military people aren't keeping a good record of what's going on because this guy dismisses it. And then later he finds out, "Uh uh-oh, maybe I should have Googled that, which of course there was no Google, but you know, he didn't even look into it. So I did think that that showed and added to the credibility, but I just love when Mel gets a cigarette and even he doesn't know what to do because there's a filter on it. And so he rips it off and starts smoking it because they didn't have those. So small moments like that show him out of time. And I really liked that, but it is that heart of him trying to find people from his past. And to do that, he goes to the library and he's using the machine and he's looking at these old articles. And he asks a woman who's working at the library played by, Amanda Foreman, Megan from Felicity, JJ's Lucky Charm, who shows up in tons of JJ stuff. I think this must have been the first time they worked together. So when she showed up and and he's like, Debbie, I need you to help me find these people. And he keeps calling her. I'm like, oh, my God, it's it's Megan. Yeah. When when Megan popped up, I I almost lost my shit. I was like, oh, my God, it's Megan. I really like how the relationship between Mel Gibson's character and the Elijah Wood character is really developed in this movie that relationship really has a tinge of a son and a father sort of sort of vibe going on and i really like that because 
Jamie Lee Curtis's character is a woman who she's a nurse. She's a kind woman. So Jamie Lee plays it as a kind woman, but she's a woman who doesn't have the best choices in men. I mean, granted, you you already mentioned it when Jamie Lee Curtis almost gets raped to death by this man. And if Mel didn't come in and save her, something very, very dark would have happened. So I really like how JJ balanced out that dichotomy of having a good mother, but a mother that doesn't have the best of judgment in men. And then JJ sort of gave the Elijah Wood character a father figure and he he showed him what a what a positive individual in a child's life can mean to someone. You know, specifically when, you know, Mel gives Elijah Wood's character the the advice about how to approach a girl that he likes. By the way, I did not like those scenes between Elijah Wood and that young actress. I was like, I, I don't like this. We can just forget this. But I did understand why JJ did it because Growing up when I was a kid, I had crushes on girls and I didn't know how to approach a girl. I didn't know how to speak to a girl. So even saying that I didn't like them, I didn't like them for the most part, but I did appreciate them and I did enjoy what JJ was going for in those particular scenes. Yeah, I thought it was kind of charming where we see Nat talking to Alice in the library and it's really awkward. And then later he's asking Mel for advice and Mel says like, just play it cool. And then later Mel realizes that's not the right thing. And he says, no, no, you got to tell her how you feel. And then just the most random scene where Elijah Wood climbs a tree outside of Alice's window and sings to her and then gets busted by the father was hilarious, but also like another one of those like, Okay, this is like a cutesy movie moment that probably would not happen in real life. Because even if this 10-year-old kid got it in his head that he had to do this, I don't know if he would actually do this at night, throwing pebbles or holding... It's like a say-anything John Cusack moment, but for a 10-year-old. So I'm like, I don't know. But it felt... It was the most sitcom-y thing in this movie that otherwise is trying to be grounded in like a fairly serious family drama that still has some comedy to it but that was the only this could have been on an episode of wonder years and it would have played as comedic so it it struck me that that was a little bit odd in terms of the overall tone of the rest of the movie the other thing that i particularly loved in this movie is the way that daniel conducts himself with everybody else Daniel has this very very and it makes sense daniel has this very very 1930s charm to him when he first meets jamie lee curtis he calls her ma'am all the time when he calls somebody on the phone he calls them ma'am when he speaks to the when he speaks to megan in the library he's very respectful so he is very very sort of 1930s typical man and i really like that because that kind of shows the change in society from one era to another you know people like you and me when we meet younger people we say that your generation is the worst and we have and, and and we were part of the best generation i think that that's inherent with every generation but i i truly think that specifically the 1930s the 1940s and the 1950s for my money were the best generation because they had a way of speaking to one another that wasn't disrespectful, that wasn't a curse every five minutes. And I really think that in today's society, and you know, this is coming from a person who likes to curse more than a fucking pirate. Did you pick up on that too? Did you like the way that Mel Gibson was sort of like proper 
to everybody else around him when the, obviously the time period that he was in was completely different as you know as far as social norms were concerned yeah this was an easy way to keep reminding us that he was a man out of time that he wasn't using modern vernacular and he was st he styled himself differently than the people of that era would so that was like a very easy shorthand to keep us reminded that he was out of time this is a concept executed in a way that feels fresh but it is a concept that has been used many many times even i think this same same here not quite the same encino man came out that was about a caveman who got frozen and woke up in the 90s and it was vastly different but also like a man out of time obviously i mentioned austin powers earlier and even last year there was a seth rogan movie an american pickle about a guy who fell into a pickle barrel in the 1900s and woke up in 2020. This movie is very much of a time of the 90s because even the journey that Mel Gibson goes on cold calling people and trying to track down, if you do it now, he just wakes up and he Googles it and within half an hour he's on TikTok and everybody knows that he has just woken up from this era. It's weird that even 30 years later, we watch this and this movie feels like it's very much of that time and out of time itself. But I did like that. The thing I think that bugged me was that it, this is such a straightforward, simple movie in a good way. It's only an hour and 40 minutes. It flies by. But there's that point after Gibson has tried to find what's going on and he starts to faint and have these episodes and he's slowly aging in a, a very speedy amount and we find out like uh oh george went wrote in his book that the aging is irreversible so all of a sudden mel gibson is going to have 50 years of aging happen to him in x amount of time and we don't know how long and it ends up 50 years of aging is going to catch up to him in about two days we wake up miles dyson in a scene and we find out that he is 1992's premier cryogenic scientist and him and his team are trying to do this same thing and have not been successful. And so they want to find Daniel for scientific reasons. And as Daniel is having this super aggressive aging, I thought, well, the only reason we're waking up Miles Dyson out of bed is that Miles Dyson hasn't been able to crack the freezing, but Miles Dyson is going to be able to stop this aging, which is not what the movie <laughs> is interested in at all. So the movie just says, nope, they never meet. They, they, there's a fun <laughs> scene where they have like a cat and mouse game in a hospital, but they never meet. Mel Gibson does go from 33 to 85 in about 10 minutes of screen time. And he finds out that the love of his life didn't die and that she actually had a family and a life and that she is now widowed. And so he decides, oh, I got to go find her. And of course we want him to go find her. And it's that touching end moment. They get together and he goes, well, are you going to marry me or what? And she's like, I will. And it's like, oh, this is so sweet. And then the movie fades to black and it's over and there's this swell music. And I'm thinking, this fucking guy got cheated. Cheated out of 50 years of life because he made a rash decision. Somebody fucked up. And now he literally missed all the best years of his life. He's now 85 years old or whatever it is because he was born in 1907. And he's going to get 
I don't know, four years at best with the love of his life. That's going to be a horrible quality of life because he's old as shit. And then he's going to die. This is supposed to be the happy ending that we're hanging our hat on after we have invested an hour and 40 minutes into this movie that this guy and this woman that we really love had two completely separate lives. This guy went to bed, woke up an old man and then fucking dies is what's going to happen. I was like, I don't know. I think that this needed a better third act where Miles Dyson steps in and has the cure. Not only does he have the cure, Mel gets to see, and this is more Captain America shit where he gets to have this relationship with his old love of his life, but she's old and she's had her life and he can start a new life with someone else and actually realize that yes, they had this connection, but because of their circumstances, he missed it and he can enjoy that. They got to reconnect but that doesn't have to be the thing that we hang the, the end of the movie on. I was just like, are we supposed to leave the theater happy that uh, an accounting error fucked this guy out of 50 years of life? And now he's going to spend the last four years with an old lady eating soup overlooking a cliff? Like what? I, I don't know. I, I just couldn't get down with that ending at all. But I appreciated that the movie was only an hour and 40 minutes and it, rather than dragging out the finale, the finale goes from Mel Gibson is fine to 15 minutes later, the movie is over and Mel Gibson's 85 years old. When you put it like that, I go, well, holy shit, Crandall, where were you when they were writing this fucking movie, man? When Miles Dyson woke, you know, came into the film, I was like, oh, shit. So it's Dr. Miles Dyson. So if this guy doesn't, if he does not figure out a way to fix Daniel and give him the life that he lost back, I'm going to have a fucking fit. And sitting and sitting here listening to you talk, I'm like, why the fuck didn't these two meet? Why the hell didn't either Dyson figure out how to reverse the process or how to stop it? And even better, it would have been so much better if, if Dyson would have figured out a way to reverse the process and if he would have gotten the two of them, Mel and his, uh, and his girl, and stuck them into the chamber and reversed them back to when they were younger at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think that that would have been really cool. Yeah, and even, I like your point of he could have stopped, even if Mel Gibson gets to like... 55 or 60 and they stop it he could still be with the the woman even though she's now 85 but we wouldn't think like literally his whole life is gone <laughs> right, right, right all of those good years he got two weeks and then now he's an old feeble man but i really don't like how when jamie lee curtis notices that mel's having these attacks mel gibson doesn't ask for help um guy you you were in a freezing tube for over 50 fucking years and you started having these attacks and you don't think it's a good idea to be seen by a doctor to see what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, are you so focused on finding finding your friend Harry or the love of your life that you don't care to find out what's happening to you? Like, I don't like the way that he sort of just ignored that. Right. I think that was that was like him flying in the face of danger, which they made really apparent in the opening with him literally flying in the face of danger. So I think it's supposed to be like, like you said, he's a tough guy who doesn't get scared. So this doesn't throw him off when he's at the hospital. Then he doesn't really want help. But I guess they might not have been much help because even the doctor's like, oh, shit, his blood is Gatorade. It's not blood. What's going on with this guy? And it's like... <laughs> 
they're, they're confounded by his test results. I don't understand the science behind this, but I'm having a good time. Right. The other thing that I enjoyed um, about this movie, well, my favorite scene in the movie was when Daniel was getting ready to leave and then and then Elijah Wood brought him the his jacket back. And they went up into the treehouse and basically Daniel built Elijah Wood a plane simulator in the treehouse. When I was a kid, I would have died to have something like that. I, I would have loved my you know granddad forever to build me something like that. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, he built me a toy car of the shag wagon from Dumb and Dumber. That's incredible. Guys, little history about me really quick. When I was a kid, I used to watch movies that were really inappropriate for me. Like the like the movie that I used to watch all the time when I was a kid and I couldn't tell anybody that I had, that I had seen it. I used to watch Trading Places all the time. Speaking of Jamie Lee, there you go. Yeah, and um, my granddad built me a toy car of the Shaggy Wagon from Dumber and Dumber. And that is still one of my prized possessions to this day. But when I saw that scene of of Mel and Elijah Wood in the in the treehouse, I was like, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever. It played like a father and a son saying goodbye or, or, or having a play date. And as a kid, I didn't have those moments with my grandfather that I can remember. So that really spoke to me and really hit my heartstrings. How did you feel about that? Yeah, that is one of the highlights of the movie. And it's just this really sweet scene of the two of them bonding and imagining together but also the directorial choice in that moment is that the camera does move and bump as if they are actually in a plane rather than just in a treehouse so it sells the imagination and the play that's supposed to be happening whereas some people might have just we might have seen it and see them reacting as if they're shaking around and the camera be still but the camera actually pans and tilts and and rattles as if it is actually happening and it's some sort of transformative moment. So I did think that was really sweet. A really nice moment before the movie does shift into that third gear to to wrap up the movie in the blink of an eye. Then, of course, Elijah Wood in an Anakin Skywalker-esque moment does have to, to land the plane. <laughs> Which, he got the training in the treehouse, so I guess that was all he needed. But I, I did think that was a, a sweet way that they worked that in and then paid it off right away. The other thing that I didn't quite like is that when Daniel and and Elijah get on the plane to go see, you know, Daniel's girlfriend, I would have appreciated at least one more scene with Jamie Lee Curtis as a as a way to say goodbye to Daniel. And the last thing I'd like to say about this movie is I did not like the way that the military was portrayed in this movie. I thought they were moronic. And I didn't I didn't like the way that the military behaved towards Daniel once they figured out who he was and I didn't I didn't like the way that the way that Dyson came off as the only thing that he wanted was to 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 test on Daniel and he didn't necessarily want to help him right it was more like a he's our property and I need him to figure out my mystery so give me that guy we own him yeah so that did not play well with me but then again for some reason I was thinking throughout the course of this movie why does this actor play scientists all the time? And he plays scientists, you know, he plays scientists that don't care. Over the years, fairly typecast. And this came out the year after T2. So it probably was coincidence because they probably filmed this before T2 broke huge. But it is funny that 
Joe Morton, who's fantastic. Even yeah, as much as even as much as a couple years ago in Justice League, yes, plays the scientist who creates Cyborg. Only in the Snyder Cut does he actually get a moment where it seems like he cares. In the theatrical version, not so much. So it is it is funny that over the years, yeah, Joe Morton has really cashed them checks for being the reckless scientist who does some sort of advance that might end humanity or have massive repercussions. Yeah, he was even he was even a scientist in that short-lived sci-fi series Eureka. My only negatives were I wanted to know more about the process of how it worked and I didn't think the character of Norm was 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 characterized fairly well. I thought that he was a surface level scientist character that needed a lot more work for for me to buy him as a scientist who would be able to do this mm-hmm. i have a couple of little things here and there but for the most part i think of i think of the films that we've talked about in early, in jj's early career i think that this is my favorite it feels the most jj to me and i know i know that i said that last week about uh, regarding henry but i i really think i felt jj's personality and his sort of thing speak through this film yeah this one definitely has that sci-fi concept but it's about family and is about sentimentality and and heart of his movies so far this is the one that has the most personality that has worked its way in uh i still think regarding henry's a better movie but it's only like i said watching this i had a blast with it and it's short it's an hour and 40 so i appreciate that it's only afterwards that i start to go I don't know about these choices. And now I would demand like an act three rewrite to get a more satisfying ending that when you leave the theater, you don't go, oh shit, dude missed his whole life. That's the only thing. And one small tidbit I want to mention because we are talking JJ stuff. He did not cameo in this movie as far as I could tell, but George Went and Mel Gibson have a scene early on. And George Went is talking about a bunch of doctors who have, been involved in the project and he says dr mcintosh dr kelvin uh so kelvin got a shout out early on in this movie which of course is something kelvin hall and felicity the kelvin timeline grandfather of jj abrams is a name that pops up in a lot of his work and it is present in this one i uh, i completely missed that good on you good on you for noticing the jj cameos and for picking up the little things because i completely missed that i've usually got my uh bad robot antenna going whenever I'm watching these movies, just for any small ping to, to hone in on it. But, uh, so that is the end of forever young 1992 Mel Gibson vehicle that Jeffrey Abrams got a soul writing credit on next movie. We will be talking about next week is not JJ's next movie because we don't feel like diving into, uh, the Joe Pesci, Danny Glover gone fishing just yet. We're going to hold that back. So we're going to jump. We've been on a writing track lately, but now we're going to shift gears to the directing track. And next week we are going to talk about the feature film directorial debut of JJ Abrams, Mission Impossible three. Uh, the thing that relaunched the Mission Impossible franchise established JJ Abrams as a theatrical force to be reckoned with and one of Marcelo's favorites and mine, you can't go wrong with mission three. So that will be next week. Marcelo, how pumped are you to talk about mission? Oh God. I cannot tell you how pumped I am to talk. I I am to talk about mission. I, I will just give you a small taste of how excited I am guys. If you love something or if you love a creative team 
And if you're sitting around one day and you, and, and, and you say to yourself, God damn it, it would be really cool if. I have been very, very lucky in that three of my creative, three of my writing heroes have worked together on several occasions. And this was one of their collaborations. I absolutely love, love, love this film. There's only one little thing that I hate about this film and something that I will never forgive JJ for. And Matt, if, uh, I mean, you probably, probably know what it is, but, uh, I will, I will save that one for, uh, the review next week, but I am so, so excited. How excited are you to talk about this film? Because we got some great things in this film. We got Philip Seymour Hoffman. How, how, how excited are you? I'm super excited because I love the mission movies. They are some of my favorites. And as an alias stand back in the day, I was shouting from the rooftops for people to go see Mission 3. Literally told everyone I know they had to run out and see it. And I saw it fucking five times or something. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely be excited to talk about that and find out the one thing that you do not enjoy about the movie. But that will be next week. So if you guys like the show, please thank you for listening like subscribe follow give us a review if you want to get in touch with us on twitter hashtag radio 815 or add us jj universe 815 we also have a lot of our back episodes on youtube so you can just google youtube.com slash radio 815 they are on there if you're more up to things on the youtube channel uh if you want to reach out to me i am on twitter at matt crandall marcelo you're on twitter where's the spot that people can reach you I'm at Creek Fanatic 88. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. Until next week, Radio 815, over and out. Radio 815 is a Balloonhead Productions presentation in association with Killer Newt Productions.